0: Plenty of people say they know God and they will tell you what God is like and what's important to Him and what He has done and what He will and would never do. But what would God say? What would God do? What would God show you if He wanted you to know Him as He truly is? That is what we discovered together today as God, through the book of Exodus, pulls out a photograph album of His work in history. To show us two pictures, we simply must see if we want to know him as he truly is. Getting to know someone usually comes in stages. Chatting about superficial things develops into discussions about more significant things. Occasional connections develop into regular interactions. Seeing someone somewhere evolves into inviting that person into your home. But perhaps the real knowing comes when he or she dives into knowing not only who you are today, but how you became who you are today. And one of the best ways to help someone understand who we are is perhaps to open up a photo album and work our way through pictures of our childhood, our teenage years, and beyond. When we look through someone's photo albums, we discover the activities they enjoy, the people who've been most involved in their lives, and the events they perceive significant, at least significant enough to forever capture on that precious roll of film back in the days of 24 exposures and $6 for processing. I remember the first time I made a trip across the country to Oregon, where David's family lives, and one night they pulled out the old home movie projector and threaded in the eight millimeter film, and I got a glimpse into the growing up years of David Guthrie, complete with color commentary by parents and siblings. Like most families, the home movie camera with its blinding lights got pulled out mostly at birthday parties and on Christmas morning. In fact, I suppose if aliens came to Earth and took our home movies back with them, hoping to discover what life is like on Earth, at least what it was like in America in the era in which I grew up, before there were flip cameras and YouTube, they might think that life was pretty much one Christmas morning after another, interspersed with a little league game home run or a trip to the Grand Canyon and a graduation tassel toss here and there. Certainly, I learned a lot about David as we watched those home movies. And look through photo albums. I want you to think about this with me. If God had a photo album filled with pictures of his family history, what pictures would be in it? What pictures from his personal history would he point to and say, if you really want to know me, you've got to know this. You've got to see this picture. Of me." I want to suggest that there are two pictures in particular that God would lift out of the album of human history to put before you so that you could take a long, lingering look. One is a picture of national devastation. This is a wide-angle shot of Egypt in ruins in the wake of the plagues. This is a picture of judgment. The other picture captures a row of homes in Goshen in which doorway after doorway is framed by brushstrokes of blood. This is a picture of salvation, salvation through judgment. What would make us think that these would be the pictures God would point to? Well, two reasons. First. When we read the chapters in Exodus where we find the story surrounding these pictures, again and again we hear God give the same reason for what's being pictured, which is, so that you will know me. Here's just a couple of examples. In Exodus 7, 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. A few verses later in verse 17, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And a little later in Exodus 9, 16, For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Certainly, God could have taken Pharaoh out in one swift sweep of his power, but he didn't. Why? Because he intended to be known and not just in the homes and hearts of his people Israel, and not just inside the palace of Egypt or even within the borders of Egypt, but throughout all the earth. He intended the story of salvation that he was accomplishing in the lives of his people to be proclaimed throughout the whole earth and throughout all generations. There is a much grander plan and a much larger story taking shape here than simply the salvation of one ethnic group at one point in history. God intends for the whole world and every generation to know He is the Lord who saves through judgment. These pictures will forever tell that story. A second reason we might think that these are pictures God would point to if we want to know Him is that he ordered Israel's calendar to be oriented to these events and for these events to be commemorated year after year through a feast? In this way, as the years progressed, his people would, in a sense, pull out this album and look at these pictures and would orient not only their calendars but also their hearts and lives according to these pictures. In observing this feast, They wouldn't merely glance at these pictures and quickly look away, but would enter in with all five senses into the story these pictures told. These pictures would tell them about the past as well as prepare them for the future. So let's look closely at these two important pictures, allowing them to be seared into our understanding, shaping our knowledge of who God is and what he's doing in the world and in our lives. The first picture is a scene of devastation and death. Of course, the picture of this place wasn't always this grim. Egypt was once a great world power, a country of culture and wealth and wonder. What brought such a dynasty down to dust? We see four things in this picture that explain what brought about this devastation and death. First, we see a stubborn Pharaoh, approached by a stuttering prophet and his brother, and they have a startling proposal. Look in Exodus 5, verses 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh is not only ignorant about God's identity, he is resistant to God's authority. But this shouldn't surprise Moses and Aaron because God had told Moses back in chapter 4, verses 21 and 23, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. While Pharaoh sees the Israelites merely as his slave labor force, to God, these people are his firstborn son. And while Pharaoh is enjoying having the Israelites serve him, calling him master, God intends for the Israelites to worship him alone, calling him father. There's a clash of wills here, a battle between two powers, but there's never any question regarding who will win this battle. Clearly, Pharaoh does not know who he is dealing with. He thinks He can refuse Yahweh's interfering demand. Pharaoh's arrogant response to God's word begins, continues, and culminates with a defiant no. He will not say yes to God, which is the definition of a hard heart. Repeatedly, we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But don't even begin to think that Pharaoh's stubbornness and stiffness will thwart God's purposes. In fact, Pharaoh's hard heart is actually a part of God's purpose, to make himself known. And it will, in fact, serve to make God's glory more fully known. Both Pharaoh's hardening of his heart and God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart are clear from the beginning when we read that God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart through to the end. Of this story in Exodus when we read that the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. While we wonder how this hardening can be both Pharaoh's free choice and God's sovereign plan, the narrator simply states both as true. You and I find it hard to understand how God can be both sovereign over all things And yet rightly hold people responsible for their choices but he is and he does we are accountable to God but he is not accountable to us next we see a series of plagues Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to obey God's instructions to let his people go so that they can worship him is met with a series of plagues intended to offer Pharaoh an opportunity for repentance even as they make God more fully known. Each plague will magnify the greatness of the one true God, while also exposing the weakness of the gods of Egypt. These aren't random ills that come upon Egypt. Rather, each one is a targeted attack on one or more of Egypt's panoply of gods. The plagues assaulted them one by one. They began with this instruction from God, in Exodus seven fifteen, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. Pharaoh will be going out to wash, but more than that, Pharaoh will be going out to worship. He will be headed out to bow down to Happy, the God of the Nile, with every dip he takes in the water. Look back in verse 16, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. The Nile, which had been full of the blood of murdered Hebrew baby boys, now became blood. And this created an instant water and food shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis as the object of their worship became a thing of horror. After the Nile turned to blood, frogs came from everywhere, and were eventually piled in huge, stinking heaps. That plague was followed by gnats, or lice, and then flies. All of these plagues were a mess and a nuisance, but it was about to get worse. Next came the plague upon the livestock, which was a huge assault on the economy of Egypt, as wealth was measured largely in terms of cattle. Then came the boils which were an assault on the physician god that the Egyptians thought kept them healthy. The hailstorm destroyed the flax and barley crops, and the next plague, the locusts, destroyed the wheat and spelt crops. This was total devastation, an ecological, environmental, and economic disaster. And then the scene went dark, really dark. Three days of heavy darkness, which was clearly an assault on the power of the sun god Ra, of whom Pharaoh was a representation. But the final plague would be the worst. It would find its way into Pharaoh's home and Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's future. Look in Exodus 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Pharaoh has been exploiting the Lord's firstborn, Israel. And now justice would demand the firstborn of Egypt. Pharaoh had heard God's clear word again and again and refused it. And thinking of himself as a God, he refused to bow before the one true God. But this plague will bring him to his knees. This awful death sentence on the firstborn came only after nine other lesser plagues were warned about and then brought about because of Pharaoh's refusal to obey God. God never judges without warning. But when unbelieving people refuse to listen to his warnings, he does come in judgment. Has God warned you again and again about some ongoing Covered up, really not a big deal, you say, sin? Have you felt the rub of conviction many times but ignored it? Because, quite frankly, you don't want to change. You don't want to give it up. You don't even want to name it as sin. Plenty of people have this struggle, you say. Besides, what right does God have to demand that I let it go? Don't you know that when you ignore conviction again and again, a callous begins to build up on your heart so that after time, you no longer feel the sting of conviction? That's when you know that your heart has become hard. We've seen in this picture so far a stubborn pharaoh and a series of plagues. And the third thing we see Is a self-defined person God shows us who he is in this scene in a way that some of us might not approve of many people are comfortable with a kindly grandfather kind of God who would never do anyone harm but they have no room for a God who will use his power to bring terror on those who refuse to obey him In fact, many people want to slam the photo album shut in regard to this picture of who God is. A God of vengeance who demands that blood be shed for sin seems primitive. Some are embarrassed by the judgment of God, and so they turn judgment into an impersonal force. But it's clear from this text, and in fact, from the entire Bible, that God is not embarrassed by this intensely personal picture of his acts of judgment. He is clear that he is the one coming to strike down the firstborn of Egypt. Listen to the personal pronouns in Exodus 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. If you want a God who would never hurt a fly, that will have to be a God that you manufacture in your own imagination. Because that is not the God of the Bible. God will not allow you to define him on your preferred terms. The God of the Bible is dangerous. Now, he's not capricious or impulsive about expressing his anger. In fact, it's obvious from this story that he is slow to anger. But there is always an end to God's patience. Even now, we know that God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance but we can be sure that his patience with those who continue to reject him will come to an end, just as his patience with Pharaoh came to an end. Finally, in this first picture, we see a scriptural pattern. This picture shows us a preliminary, temporary judgment day that gives us a glimpse of the devastation and death Of the great judgment day that is yet to come. It reveals a scriptural pattern for God's judgment on all who refuse to obey Him. But along with certain judgment, we can also see in this scriptural pattern that God saves those who turn to Him, not apart from, but actually through His acts of judgment. God saved the Israelites through the judgment he brought down upon Egypt. God's salvation has always been and will always be accomplished through acts of judgment. Adam and Eve were saved through the judgment that came down in the garden by being expelled from the garden. Noah was saved through the judgment that fell on the earth in the form of rain. And Lot and his family were saved through the fire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. We can trace it throughout Scripture, leading all the way to the most profound act of God's judgment. It was through the judgment that fell on Christ on the cross that God accomplished the greatest salvation of all time, which he makes available to all who will call upon him. The scriptural pattern of salvation through judgment continues as we look into the future, where we see in Revelation A great day of salvation when there will be no more death. And how will we enter into that day? Through a great act of judgment that will in fact echo the plagues of Egypt visited on those who have refused God's word and persecuted God's people. When Jesus returns, there will be judgment and there will be salvation through that judgment. So we've seen one picture, a picture of devastation and deliverance. And now the second picture, which we also must see if we want to know God. This is a picture of a doorpost, or really many doorposts, with blood painted on each one. Now this seems strange. Why would a picture of a doorpost actually be a picture that God himself would point to If he wanted us to know him. Well actually, there's no way we can know him at all if we don't take in what this doorpost pictures for us. It shows us that while God's judgment brings devastation and death, God offers a way of escape from that judgment. He provides protection in judgment for all who will put their faith in his provision of an innocent Substitute. God instructed Moses and Aaron in Exodus twelve, beginning in verse three, "Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their fathers' houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel." shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now, wait a minute. This doesn't seem to make sense. The greatest power in the universe is coming down to bring death on every home. And the only way to be protected is to kill a weak little lamb? Can this really be? This only makes sense if we put it in context of the story of the lamb that spans the entirety of the Bible. Beginning in Genesis when Abel, a keeper of sheep, brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock to God. We trace this story of the lamb to the day when Abraham was called to make an offering of his son who was spared when God provided a lamb to be sacrificed instead. In this case, God provided one lamb as a substitute for one person, Abraham's son, Isaac. Here in Exodus, we see that God made provision for one lamb to be sacrificed for one household. Later, we'll read of God's instructions for the Day of Atonement, in which one lamb will be sacrificed for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. But my friends, all of these lambs We're just preparing God's people to recognize God's provision in Mary's little lamb. Finally, the day came when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was God's provision of one lamb to die, not for one person. Or one family or one nation but for one world throughout the entire Bible we have it pictured for us again and again that anyone who wants to be made right with God can only do so on the basis of the lamb that God has provided as we look closer at this second picture of doorposts and deliverance we see that this judgment was first an impartial sentence When God told Moses and Aaron that the destroyer was going to strike down the firstborn, this judgment would fall on both the Egyptians and the Israelites. There wasn't favoritism that would be shown to the Hebrews. If they persisted in unbelief and refused to kill the lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost, they too would perish. Likewise, this way of escape was open to the Egyptians, who would put their faith in the blood of the lamb. And certainly some did. We know that there were Egyptians who later left Egypt with the Israelites, having put their faith in the one true God, rejecting the gods of Egypt. This salvation was by grace, through faith, expressed by brushing the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Second, we must see that what was required was a perfect sacrifice. The lamb slaughtered in the homes of the Israelites had to be without blemish. And here it begins to become clearer to us what is happening. God is using the sacrifice of lambs in Egypt to prepare his people to recognize the perfect sacrifice he will one day provide in his own son. When Jesus, who has never sinned, offers himself as a sacrifice, they'll be more likely to recognize him as the lamb of God, the lamb that God has provided because this picture of a perfect sacrifice will have been impressed upon them year after year in the selection and slaying of the Passover lamb. The third thing we see is a precise substitution. The Israelites were instructed in chapter 12, verse 3, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. There had to be a precise equivalency in each home to the number of people in the household. You see, there was a substitution taking place. And a correspondence between the number and needs of the people and the lamb provided was required. I want you to imagine with me what it was like in Hebrew homes on this night. As this truth of substitution began to sink in, God's instructions were that the Hebrews had to take a lamb into their home. And then four days later, as the sun was beginning to set, Dad had to take the innocent little lamb, which everyone in the house had become so fond of, and slit its throat. Perhaps there were many little boys in Hebrew houses who had become attached to the lamb and asked, Dad, do we really have to kill the lamb? He's done nothing to deserve this. To which the father replied, son, either the lamb dies or you die. But in other homes, the scene played out quite differently. In other homes in Egypt, firstborn sons asked, Dad, have we killed the lamb and put its blood on the doorframe? And the dad perhaps said something like, Oh, don't believe that stuff. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe we'll do that sometime, but not tonight. But, Dad, everything else Moses has warned would happen has happened. Just like he said, Please, Dad, let's kill the lamb and eat it and brush the blood on the doorpost right now. Because we have the benefit of hindsight, we think that certainly we would have taken Moses' words to heart and killed the lamb. But perhaps that's only because we have the whole Bible to put this story of the lamb into context. We have to admit, apart from the rest of the Bible story, that shows us the picture again and again of a lamb being sacrificed in our place, we would find it difficult to believe that blood brushed on a doorpost would have any saving power. Similarly, many people today find it difficult to believe that blood shed on a cross 2,000 years ago has any saving power for them. This only makes sense If we understand substitution, that God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the substitution that saves us. Either the lamb dies or we die. The lamb has died. God's very own firstborn son in our place so that we need not die. The fourth thing we must see is our source of protection. Look back in Exodus 12 in verses 21 through 23. Then Moses called all of the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb." What will be the difference between the homes where the firstborn dies and the homes in which everyone survives the night? When he sees the blood, the Lord will pass over. The salvation God provides is by grace through faith. The Israelites' killing of a lamb and sprinkling of the blood was an act of faith. The blood on the lintel and two doorposts is proof that they are taking God at his word about the judgment to come and the protection he will provide in the death of the lamb. And it's the same for us. If we take God at his word, that judgment is coming, the proof is that the blood of the lamb has become our covering, our hiding place. Our lives are marked by that blood. So many people have so many ideas about what it means to be a Christian. Many people think that a Christian is someone who believes in God and tries to be good or someone who lives by the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, as if anyone could. My friend, a Christian is a person who recognizes that he or she is a sinner deserving nothing less than the terrifying judgment of God and takes refuge in nothing other than the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. If this is you, you have no need to fear the day when we will all stand before God, you can know that you will be protected on that day from the judgment you deserve, not because God will go soft and overlook your very real guilt, but because God will look at you and see that the blood has been applied. The blood of the Lamb will be your source of protection when judgment falls. Finally, we must see the sacrament provided. From the time of Moses up to the time of Jesus and beyond, the Israelites celebrated the Passover each spring. People from all over the country would go to Jerusalem to sacrifice a lamb for the Passover feast. The day Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was the very same day herds of Passover lambs were being driven into the city to be sacrificed. Later that week, Jesus told his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Ever since John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, all of Jesus' ministry had been driving toward this day, this celebration of Passover, when Christ, our Passover Lamb, would be sacrificed for us. In Luke 22, verse 14 and 15, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The disciples then expected Jesus to pick up the bread and say the familiar words of the Passover feast, This is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. But instead... He said something very different in verse 19. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In the Last Supper, Jesus endowed the Feast of Passover with new meaning. Instead of celebrating the redemption of Israel from Egypt, it became clear that these elements now symbolize redemption from the slavery of sin provided by his death as the Lamb of God. His death was the central event toward which all of history had been moving and from which it has its meaning. So there they are. Two pictures that we must see if we truly want to know God. And it's at the cross of Christ, the picture of devastation and death and the picture of a doorpost and deliverance merge into one, a singular picture of God's grace and mercy. At the cross, the judgment of God came down in full force against God's own firstborn son. The blood was spilt by our perfect substitute, providing protection for all who will come under it. So gaze into the wonder of this picture, knowing that if you really want to know God, this indeed is the picture you must see.